This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So the title of the talk is The Essence of Ethics. So each evening after the meditation, as part of our puja, we circumambulate the stupa, the stupa that contains the relics of the venerable Dada Rinpoche. And Dada Rinpoche, as I'm sure you all know, is one of Bhante's teachers. The teacher, in fact, who he was probably closest to on a personal level. They developed something of a friendship with one another, as well as Rinpoche being uh, Bhante's teacher. Indeed, Dada Rinpoche once said that he felt that he had learned something about spiritual friendship through his connection with Bhante. He said, normally in Tibetan Buddhism, teachers are always, uh, literally and metaphorically, uh, on the throne, the teaching throne, in relation to the disciple. But Rinpoche found something else developing through his connection with Bhante. He was Bhante's teacher, but they developed something of a friendship. For Bhante, for, out of all of the great people he met, and he met some remarkable people, he felt that Dada Rinpoche most exemplified the Bodhisattva ideal. And this is very interesting because Bhante, who is a very critical man, a very unsentimental man, uh, very interesting that uh, um, out of all these people, he came to the conclusion that Rinpoche was indeed a Bodhisattva. Dada Rinpoche was a man of great learning, of great knowledge, of great spiritual practice. In fact, he was also um, destined to be very high up in the Gelugpa hierarchy, the Gelug being the, the, the predominant school in Tibetan Buddhism, certainly in terms of numbers and institutional strength. Um, but he gave up all that. Uh, he was also a man of great meditation practice and devotion and a man of great, intense practicality. He was also courageous, fearless, and he had a reputation for speaking his mind. Um, He wasn't somebody who went along with the status quo, and this got him into trouble with the uh, officials of the Tibetan government in exile, and he had a lot of problems with them. He worked outside of a lot of the uh, sort of Tibetan officialdom, as it were, he had great practical loving-kindness, which is perhaps best exemplified in the school he established for, t- for Tibetan refugee children, which uh, the Karinar Trust and, and probably some of you have uh, been involved in, in helping to support. It, in fact, it was, you know, Bhante and, uh, and, 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 and originally Bhante and later on Lokamitra who really, um, you know, developed the material support for that school. Um, and I would, I would really recommend that you read The Wheel and the Diamond, Suvadra's Life of Rinpoche and Dada Rinpoche, A Celebration, where you find very moving accounts, especially from his Tibetan disciples and people raised in his school, uh, very moving accounts of, of, of Rinpoche's uh, great loving-kindness and, uh, and wisdom. And you really do get a picture of a living bodhisattva or what a living bodhisattva might be like. Many years ago, I had the great good fortune of meeting Dada Rinpoche. And I had the impression 
of great human kindness and great purity, great purity of response uh, to me and great strength and intelligence, but so natural, so uh, spontaneous. And uh, I sort of experienced even his compassion. I uh, did what I thought was the proper thing when I met him. Uh, That was to do a full-length prostration. And he looked very, very concerned that I might injure myself. He's obviously quite worried that uh, I was doing damage to myself. Because he regarded Dada Rinpoche as a bodhisattva, Bhante asked Dada Rinpoche to give him, to confer upon him, the bodhisattva ordination, which Dada Rinpoche did not long before Bhante returned to the West. The bodhisattva ordination is in fact a sort of standard ceremony within Tibetan Buddhism, but for Bhante it was hugely significant. He took it very, very seriously indeed. It represented for him the formal acceptance of the bodhisattva ideal, although obviously it was something that had inspired him and he'd been trying to live uh, for for a long time. But it was the formal acceptance of the bodhisattva ideal from someone who he regarded as a living bodhisattva. So it's a wonderful thing that we have this stupa here. Uh, Dada Rinpoche, a living bodhisattva, is in a sense in some way with us at Padmaloka. And there's a sense in which that stupa is the very heart of Padmaloka. And I'm very grateful to Bhante for enshrining the relics uh, in the stupa. He did conducted that ceremony some years ago. Uh, very, very grateful to Bhante for that. So when we circumambulate that stupa, we're performing, as it were, a bodhisattva puja. And uh, just another little detail, um, around the time of receiving the Bodhisattva ordination, Bhante received from Dada Rinpoche the White Tara uh, Abhisheka, the White Tara uh, initiation, and that, that Dada Rinpoche was uh, you know, particularly associated uh, uh, with this practice. So there's a connection between Dada Rinpoche and, and Tara. Indeed, when uh, uh, Dada Rinpoche's uh, disciples, Jampo Kalsang and his wife, uh, uh, his wife sadly has, has passed away, great disciples of Rinpoche and who who run his school and indeed are the grandparents of the new Dada Rinpoche. Uh, Mrs. Calden said that the mantra we should chant as we went round that stupa was the Tara mantra, just the, the basic Tara mantra. Um, so that was quite, she felt that that was the, the thing we should be doing. So what was the nature of this, this Bodhisattva ordination that Bhante received? Uh, definitely regarded, it's definitely regarded as the commitment to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. But it's worked out very practically indeed, in the form especially of what are known as the 18 root downfalls and the 46 branch downfalls from bodhicitta, from your vow to attain enlightenment for all beings. They represent different ways, these 18 root downfalls and 46 branch downfalls. They represent different ways in which one falls away from the aspiration to gain enlightenment for all. Uh, these downfalls can be mended, they can be put, put right. Uh, and actually these downfalls are very practical. So obviously we're dealing with the aspiration uh, to, towards bodhicitta and the things that... Uh, um, uh, get in the way of that, the things we do that get in the way of that. After his Bodhisattva ordination, Bhante translated these 
root and branch downfalls with Rinpoche, Rinpoche giving as well a detailed explanation of each downfall uh, according to the commentary of Tsongkhapa. So these root and branch downfalls, Bhante has described as the bodhisattva precepts and they're patterns of morality, patterns of moral conduct for the bodhisattva, especially the aspiring bodhisattva. They bring out, they draw out the altruistic dimension of spiritual practice. They look at morality in terms of the effect that we have on other people. And they synthesize these downfalls, they draw together uh, many traditions of ethical conduct preserved in the Mahayana. Uh, if you think of Mahayana literature, sutra literature, you probably think of the perfection of wisdom and all the, pro- all the profound metaphysical uh, teachings, or you think of those incredibly cosmic, mythic, archetypal sutras. But there's a lot of material in Mahayana literature on ethics. It was obviously... Uh, quite a preoccupation for the early followers of the Mahayana. How should one, devoted to gaining enlightenment for all, actually behave in the ordinary activities of life? Um, It's interesting that uh, one of the important patterns of ethics found in these sutras are indeed the ten precepts that we take uh, as part of our ordination into the Western Buddhist order, the Dhammachari, Dhammacharini ordination. And they're mentioned a lot in the Mahayana. In the Vimalakirti Nidesha, the ten precepts are the way in which a bodhisattva purifies the Buddha field, the way in which, in other words, a bodhisattva creates a pure land. Or in the Ratnaguna Sangchayagata, Pragna Paramita, perfect observance of the ten precepts are described as, as the qualities, as one of the qualities of an irreversible bodhisattva. I was looking also at a Padmasambhava Terma text uh, which describes the, uh, the conduct of a bodhisattva in terms of observing the ten precepts. So in the, uh, for the Tibetan Nyingma tradition, um, the ten precepts are seen as the expression of the bodhisattva path. So we could look at Shila Paramita as the ten precepts and certainly that is the way in which Bhante discusses the ten precepts in the Ten Pillars of Buddhism, though he doesn't say that. His exposition of the Ten Precept is so deep and so profound, even though it's in a very uh, short book, The Ten Pillars of Buddhism. Actually, it's very much within the context, I would say, of the Bodhisattva path. He's going well beyond just mere, you know, ordinary moral restraint and actually pointing out the scope and range of these ten great ethical principles you know, not just for the benefit of oneself, but for the benefit of all. If you just, just look at his discussion of the first precept, uh, you see where he ends up. But although we could look at the, the ten precepts, today I want to take a different approach. In fact, I'm not even going to go into these, these, these root and branch downfalls. Without that, would be, that would be a whole retreat in itself, to go into the Bodhisattva precepts. I want to take a different approach. One of the texts behind, as it were, the Bodhisattva precepts, that the Bodhisattva precepts are drawn from, one of the texts that Rinpoche, that, that Rinpoche would have been drawing on, as it were, is by the great teacher Asanga. Uh, Asanga is associated with the foundations of the Yogacara school, and he's one of our, the teachers on the refuge tree. If you look at the top of the teachers of the past, you have Nagarjuna, 
and next to him you have a Sangha, the two sort of fountain heads, if you like, for the whole of Mahayana. There's the lovely story of a Sangha meditating in retreat, trying to uh, visualize, trying to see, trying to experience the Bodhisattva Maitreya, the, Maitre- the Bodhisattva of of, of loving kindness, of uh, enlightened loving kindness. And uh, you probably remember the story that uh, he keeps getting disheartened after years and years of doing this. He still doesn't see Maitreya and he gets various signs to stay in retreat. But even after about nine years, nothing happens. So he leaves and then on the road sees a dog whose uh, hindquarters, this, this, this bitch dog, his hindquarters are just covered in, in maggots and she's in terrible pain. And he decides to remove the maggots with his tongue uh, to a piece of flesh, which he cuts off from his leg. And in that moment, in that moment when he's moving, removing the maggots with his tongue, there's this great vision of Maitreya. And he says, um, he says, well, why didn't you come when I was in retreat, even though Maitreya is there? And Maitreya's reply is, I was there all the time, but you couldn't see me because you didn't have enough love and compassion. Your love and compassion wasn't sufficient, so that's why you couldn't see me. Very profound teaching in this story. Uh, You'll only see uh, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas when you are the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Asanga was not only a great yogi, a great scholar, a great teacher. Um, he, He was a great scholar, a great teacher. He wrote many works. One of them is the Bodhisattva Bhumi, or Stages of the Bodhisattva Path, which is an encyclopedic presentation of the Bodhisattva Path. You know, all the stages and aspects of practice. He just draws together all the great Mahayana traditions. A very important chapter in this, hugely influential in India-Tibet, so much so that it's circulated as a separate work in its own right, is the chapter on ethics, the section on ethics, and it was the this chapter on the Bodhisattva's ethics, which uh, was commented a lot uh, on, especially in Tibet, and especially very influential was Tsongkhapa's commentary on this section on ethics. Tsongkhapa is also in our refuge tree, so Nagarjuna, Asanga, uh, Dada Rinpoche, we've also got Maitreya and the Buddha, so you know we're in this sort of lineage and Bhante, of course. It's said that the, this section of ethics from the Bodhisattva Bhumi contains all aspects of a Bodhisattva's practice, but it looks at it, arranges it, as it were, as a Bodhisattva's conduct, as his shila, how he actually lives. And some of us in recent years, inspired by Sabuti, have been studying this, uh, this section on ethics. And it's a staggering work. It's very pithy. Um, but it's just, uh, it's the range of ethical practice is, is vast, you know, for a bodhisattva. Um, but even within that, within that, even though it's vast and could be overwhelming, actually it contains, we found some very, very mu- mu- useful material indeed, very, very stimulating material. It would take far too long to even give a survey of this section and one would need, you know, hundreds of talks to expound even, you know, maybe a few phrases in it. Uh, however, I want to look at the first section of Asanga's chapter on ethics, the first section, um, the first subheading in his chapter on ethics, which is the essence of ethics. 
this is very significant indeed. The essence of ethics. Later on uh, in his in his chapter, there are elaborate descriptions of how a bodhisattva lives, but they all seem to emerge and, as it were, go back to the the essence of the matter, the heart of the matter. So we need to grasp the essence of ethics. We need to have a feeling for the heart of it all to really make sense of everything else that follows. So I'm going to read now from Asanga's text in the translation by Mark Tatz and then make some comments. What is the essence of ethics for the Bodhisattva? Briefly, to possess four qualities constitutes the essence of ethics for the Bodhisattva. What are the four? One, to correctly receive it, that is the essence of ethics, from someone else. To correctly receive it from someone else. Two, to have a very purified intention. Three, to make correction after failure. And four, to avoid failure by generating respect and remaining mindful of that. So let's go through these four. First of all, to correctly receive the essence of ethics from someone else. This is highly significant. One needs to receive, says Asanga, the essence of ethics from someone else. One needs a spiritual friend, a preceptor, to communicate that essence to one. So at once, Asanga places ethics within the domain, within the context of spiritual friendship and spiritual community. Ethics, morality, is not regarded as a purely personal affair to be determined solely by oneself. Yes, of course, we need to have a personal feeling for ethics. We'll come to that in a moment. But we also need others who exemplify ethics for us, who exemplify the best way to live for us. We need to catch the spirit of the Bodhisattva path and the Bodhisattva's conduct from those who actually live that path or who are attempting to live that path. I think there's a more general point here regarding the need for teachers. And I mean teachers in a very broad sense. The world needs people, flesh and blood people, to transmit culture, knowledge, learning, and yes, ethics and spiritual life. I don't believe that uh, you know, all this can happen through, say, electronic media or simply through books. It keeps it all so distant. We need to be with people and uh, go through all the ups and downs that go with that to really learn. It's interesting, in Indian tradition, um, our parents are regarded as our first teachers, our first teachers. We learn so much from our parents. Maybe it hasn't always been that helpful, but of course that's another story. I'm sure those of you who, who are parents uh, you know, know what this is actually like. So we need to be around spiritual friends. We need a preceptor if we're to successfully follow the Bodhisattva path. They spark us off, they inspire us, they support us. Also it has to be said that precepts, moral, moral codes, are very general. Very broad principles, the ten precepts are very, very broad precept, precepts. Sometimes, perhaps often, it's, it's not clear to us how to apply those principles. So access to a spiritual friend is, very, is not only helpful, it's necessary. 
He won't necessarily tell us what to do, but he'll certainly clarify the principle and help us to clarify our options. This is why I think the great Atisha uh, once said when he was asked, what's more important, the sutras and the commentaries or the precept of the Lama? And Atisha says the precept of the Lama is more important than all the sutras and commentaries because the, the, the Lama gives you the precept where you apply the broad teachings of the Dharma to your actual situation. In the traditions of the Bodhisattva ordination, the qualities necessary for a precept are explored. Here's uh, one description. This is not from Asanga. This is a comment uh, by another great master on Asanga's text. So the preceptor must have faith in the Bodhisattva vow and be of a character that is not in contradiction with any of the six perfections. He must know the vow ceremony in letter and in spirit and must, in addition, be an object of reverence for the candidate, the candidate for ordination. So the preceptor who you receive the essence of ethics, of ethics from must be something of an exemplar for you of spiritual life. There's someone who has faith in the Bodhisattva vow. They respond to and believe, in other words, in the path of gaining enlightenment for all, and they're actually practicing the six paramitas. They know what it they 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 know what the ordination ceremony means in letter and spirit. Uh, they know what the precepts are in letter and spirit, and very very importantly, they are an object of reverence for you. You revere and respect them. The Sanskrit for reverence is gaurava which comes from a, a, a root meaning heavy or weighty. So the preceptor's heavy. Or rather, the idea here is that they have that the, your preceptor would be someone who has spiritual weight for you. And that doesn't mean that they're heavy in the sense of overbearing and authoritarian. So in Bhante's context, Dada Rinpoche was spiritually weighty for him, weighty with bodhisattva qualities. So what does all that actually mean for us in our context? Uh, actually, there are strong resonances between what Asanga and the commentators are saying and our own vision of ordination. Ordination is not about joining a club. It's not about passing exams to get into a kind of college. Um, it's not an empty ceremony, a bit of ceremonial in the ordination ceremony, our ordination ceremony, we say that the preceptor witnesses your effective going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. In other words, he affirms, he confirms that you are indeed aspiring to enlightenment for the benefit of all. You might have a long way to go. You might have lots to do. Uh, there is lots to do. But the preceptor sees that there is enough of you behind that aspiration to actually do it, that you are doing it to some extent. Also, the preceptor's confident that you're in touch with the spirit of the order. He feels in tune with you, you feel in tune with him. And for that ordination to be effective, there needs to be at least some respect for your preceptor. In a Sangha's context, the word is reverence, which is, of course, a very, very strong word. Uh, but that might be too much uh, within our context. But it would certainly be odd if you didn't feel some respect 
for your preceptor. Not a groveling respect, and it doesn't mean that you can't uh, disagree with him. And it might not be an excessively vertical relationship, as it were. Your preceptor's not like a guru. But there would be an appreciation that he has some experience of the Dharma, and indeed more experience of the Dharma and the order than, than you have. You probably wouldn't want him to be your preceptor if you didn't feel something of that. This is why ordination can take a long time. Uh, yes, there's things to learn, things to work on in yourself, things to learn about the Dharma, about the order. But it's also a process of you getting to know the order, getting to know order members, developing connections and friendships and spiritual friendships and tuning in and discovering that common spirit. And this will you know, focus eventually on a particular order member who would be your preceptor. must admit I found it odd sometimes uh, in my years in the ordination process. Perhaps I shouldn't find it odd, but I do find it odd. Uh, where, with sometimes people almost clamouring to be ordained, at the same time being incredibly, excessively critical of the order. And I think to myself, well, if it's that bad, why on earth do you want to join it? If I thought that way about, about it, I wouldn't want to be in it. I'd leave. It's not to say the order is, is perfect. Far from it. There's much to improve upon. But it's very, very odd, you know, that you want to join something that you're excessively critical of. Within our own order member, within our own order, the preceptors, private and public, are experienced order members with real feeling for the Bodhisattva path. I can say that of all of the preceptors with great confidence. And they're making an effort to follow it. They are indeed ordinary human beings. And they'll often be very honest about their, their struggles. I don't think any preceptor pretends to be something that he isn't. So the, the preceptors are not perfect, fully realised beings. And of course sometimes people want uh, a great realised master. But actually what we need in our spiritual life, as Gampopa says, is a spiritual friend in the form of an ordinary human being. That's quite a remarkable uh, friend to have, a spiritual friend in the form of an ordinary human being who we can actually relate to. And a preceptor won't, and I think this is very important, demand respect. Respect and reverence need to be cultivated, can only be cultivated in a completely free atmosphere. Uh, respect and reverence has to arise out of your metta and your positive spiritual aspiration and out of your actual experience of someone. It can't be demanded or manufactured. I remember once Banti uh, talked, giving an account of a conversation he had with uh, Allen Ginsberg, who was a, a bit of a friend of Bhante's. Allen Ginsberg, who was a disciple of Trungpa, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And they talked a bit about the guru-disciple relationship. And Bhante told Allen Ginsberg that he felt that you, you can't just switch on you know, faith and devotion because you're told that uh, such and such a person is uh, a highly realised being or something like that. It can't just be manufactured by that, like that. It must arise out of your actual experience of someone. Reverence, I think, is, is of very, very great importance. Years ago, Banti talked a bit about reverence. Uh, um, this is uh, 
around the time he gave that lecture, Enlightenment is Experience and Non-Experience, and how, uh, how lacking it actually is in society. He had some wonderful quotes from uh, Coleridge, and indeed from Goethe. Um, was it the quote from Goethe was, uh, the highest achievement of men of thought is to have fathomed the fathomable and to silently revere the unfathomable. And... Uh, it's, it's uh, it, yes, reverence is, is very, very important for spiritual growth to acknowledge that there is something sublime, something beyond us, people beyond us, and have a positive sense of spiritual hierarchy. And I must admit, it seems that we are sort of losing that. There can be a sort of atmosphere that there's nothing really to learn, that we are all right as we are, and everybody is okay as they are. Maybe it's a reaction to... Uh, a forced reverence that you know we were supposed to feel, you know, in our in our past. But I think we're actually going the other way. And there's a kind, the kind of the cult of the new and the cult of youth. I think has something to do with it. I was watching. Um, it wasn't my choice, but I was with some friends, and uh, we were watching the Star Wars thing where Luke Skywalker is being trained by Yoda. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the old uh, Jedi Knight, I don't know if this is something from popular culture, but I think it's very revealing. And Luke leaves Yoda to go, you know, he won't stay and train. And that's it's sort of presented in the, in the film. is like, well, he has got the real knowledge and he's doing the right thing. And I thought that sent completely the wrong message, completely the wrong message, and represented a profound in, uh, misunderstanding of what the transmission of knowledge and culture and spiritual life is really all about, but, you know, um, I might be wrong. <laughs> yes, but I think this whole thing of reverence and uh, the whole connection between reverence and learning, being willing to learn, I think it, it probably is in danger, and uh, I think this is where spiritual communities are so important, uh, you know, to keep that spirit alive. But why, more precisely, is correctly receiving the essence of a bodhisattva ethics so important. Asanga explains, because he has received the essence of ethics from someone else, when the bodhisattva fails in his training, then dependent on the other, embarrassment will be born. So you have a spiritual friend, a preceptor, someone who you respect, maybe you even revere them. So what happens then when you do something unskillful, maybe you're lazy, maybe you've stopped meditating, maybe you've been harsh in your speech, maybe you've lied to someone, maybe you're resentful, whatever. What happens? Well, if you really do have reverence or, or respect, it's said that what arises is apatrapya, or sometimes vyapatrapya, but let's just say apatrapya because you'll be more familiar with that. Tats translates this as embarrassment. Apatrapya literally means something like to turn away from evil. And it can be rendered as, and is often rendered as, fear of blame from the wise. Gunter translates it as decorum. I prefer sensitivity to the opinion of spiritual friends as a, as a, as a, a, a not an exact translation, but very much a, a rendering, sensitivity to the opinion of spiritual friends. It's that feeling of shame that arises when you think of your spiritual friends in relation to unskillful action. The, the unskillful action that you're about to do, 
you're about to do it and you think, oh my goodness, what would, what would Surita think about that? Or what would Banti think about that? Yes, the, the, so, so the, uh, the, um, shame that you feel when you think of your spiritual friends, if you're about to do something or you're in the middle of doing something or you've done something and then you think, oh my goodness, what would my friends, what would my spiritual friends think of that? So your spiritual friends were the preceptors, Kalyana Mitras, your fellow chapter members, your fellow Mitras. These all, as it were, embody to some extent the spiritual path for you. You feel that you're letting them down. It's not a fear of punishment or rejection. It's a positive sense of shame in relation to them. And you want to confess your fault to them. You want to put it right. You feel out of alignment with your spiritual friends, out of harmony with them because of the unskillful action that you've done. And you don't feel that you can move on until you've confessed to them, until you've told them what you've done. I remember a period in my own life where I became aware of some very, very unskillful action which had caused harm to others and harm to the order and harm to myself. And I felt very, very ashamed, very, very deeply ashamed at what I'd done when I became acutely aware of it. And I felt that I couldn't actually hold my head up in the order until I had actually confessed what I'd done and actually acknowledged my faults and actually started to take steps to put things right. I just couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't feel I could sort of even look all the members in the eye until I'd done that. And I, ha- I must say that uh, uh, the order, uh, when I, I, I wrote to people about it, the order members were extraordinarily uh, responsive to my confession, very kind, and indeed a very intelligent uh, response, uh, you know, accepting at the same time, definitely acknowledging, yes, you did wrong. A very, very impressive uh, response indeed. And I must say, though, I do experience the order uh, still as a very, very sensitive body of people uh, in in this way. Apatrapia, this sensitivity to the opinion of the wise, is said to be in every skillful state. In every skillful state, at least lying latent in every skillful state, is this sensitivity to the opinion of spiritual friends. And it's something that we can actually cultivate in the Sangha. The Sangha should really be an, be, be an ethically sensitive community. Not in the sense of moral policemen going around telling us how to live and telling us what to do, but more, uh, more, be, more, more in the sense of all of us cultivating an ethical sensitivity to one another and that resulting in acknowledgement and confession and the desire for, for uh, being reflected back, feedback about our conduct. Now this apatrapia is not a pleasant mental state. It's a positive mental state, but it's, it's not pleasant. It's uncomfortable. Uh, embarrassment in, in, in that sense is actually quite a good uh, translation of the term. Because when you feel it, you feel very exposed. You feel, yes, uh, uh, yeah, exposed and ashamed. And uh, of course, you try to resist it because it's an uncomfortable state. You, you, you resist it. You, you come up with all sorts of strategies for, you know, resisting it, pretending it's not there, pretending, well, I haven't done anything wrong. You know, rationalizing your behavior, even getting 
highly critical and even moralistic about other people. I've, 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 I've uh, made aware of this quite graphically uh, some months ago with a friend of mine who was on a sort of moral crusade about something. And then some months later, he confessed to some, you know, really uh, not very good things he'd been up to. And I thought that was very, very interesting. I, I think he was, you know, actually keeping at bay um, his own unskillfulness. In the Abhidharma, there is, in fact, a negative mental event, which is the opposite of apatrapia and is sort of attacking apatrapia. This is unapatrapia. So this is a state of mind uh, where you lack any respect for the opinion of others. There's a complete lack of openness to spiritual friends. There's no reverence for anything. It's a highly individualistic, self-centered state of mind. We cultivate apatrapia through cultivating reverence, learning to revere the Dharma, learning to revere the sublimity of the Bodhisattva ideal, even respecting, even revering anyone who is attempting to live up to that ideal. So that's apatrapia. So this is the way we'll correct our our fault, Um, you know, um, when we when we go against the aspiration to bodhicitta, we bring to mind our preceptor, our spiritual friend, and this generates in us a shame about what we're doing. So let's go to the second quality that Asanga says constitutes the essence of ethics. This, he says, is to have a very purified intention. So this refers to the person actually taking the precepts, the person being ordained. And the Sanskrit here is suvishuddhashaya. Suvishuddha means perfectly pure, truly pure. And ashaya means intention, will or heart. So it's a perfectly pure, a truly pure intention or will or heart. So to enter the Bodhisattva path, to go for refuge, to get ordained... One need this, needs this perfectly pure intention, a pure motivation. In the Bodhisattva tradition, in the commentaries, it said this means having the lofty intention of gaining enlightenment for all living beings. That's the perfectly pure motivation. Uh, in the context of ordination into the Western Buddhist order, it's exactly the same. Uh, in our public ordination ceremony, the, the last two acceptance verses uh, go um, for the attainment of enlightenment. I accept this ordination for the benefit of all beings. I accept this ordination. So we have exactly the same vision. You want to work on yourself and you want to benefit others. Uh, you might be doing that on a very, on quite a humble level, but that's your vision of spiritual life, working on yourself and benefiting others. So that's the pure motivation. Pure means, of course, unmixed. There's no other motives mixed in. And in the Bodhisattva tradition, they mention the other motives. Our motives for fame, status, means of support. Uh, you're doing it just because your mates are doing it. These are, these are gross examples, but they do happen. I can remember... Um, a monk uh, in Nagpur in, in India 
um, coming along to one of our order members saying, how can I be ordained into, into your order, into Trilokia Baldemar Sangha? I'd like to be ordained soon. And the order member said, well, it doesn't actually work like that. You know, it, it uh, can't just do a ceremony and give you a case. You know, it's the whole process. And he said, but look, I need to be ordained quickly because you order members, you're so popular. Everybody likes you, you know, doing ceremonies and giving talks that um, I'm worried about my livelihood. You know, I depend on, you know, as a monk, you know, being given, you know, given, you know, I get my food for doing all these ceremonies and money. And, you know, this order member had to say, well, it doesn't quite work like that. We don't do it for that reason in our order. Um, but, uh, you know, this is, these, these, this is uh, sometimes can be people, people's motives. For us our, in the West, I think our motives can often be much more, um, perhaps more subtle, maybe more sort of psychological. Um, you know, we have a desire maybe to be part of a group, to be loved, um, you know, or we might, might have a desire to be a teacher, you know, to be out front, and you know, if you know, if we're, we're we're very honest, you know, we might even hidden somewhere. There's a thought. Well, if I have a case and I lead classes, maybe it'd be a good way of, you know, getting girlfriends or boyfriends or something like that. Well, you know, one does have to hold one's hand up um, when one was young. Sorry to admit these terrible failings, but there you are. All hidden away. Um, we have. In the ordination, the, the, the guidelines for discussing ordination requests. The, the, the first one, is he sincerely going for refuge? And uh, sometimes this is just ticked, yes, he's sincere. And that's good, it's good to infirm somebody's sincerity. I've no doubt that all of you are completely sincere in your desire to be ordained. I've absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but it would be strange if there weren't other motives going on. And it's important to reveal these and to become aware of them and to confess them. It doesn't mean that you're a terrible person to have dodgy motives. We've all got dodgy motives. I've got dodgy motives. But what's important is to reveal them and, and purify them and confess them. In the Bodhisattva tradition, it's said that the preceptor tests the candidate for ordination with suitable questioning. I like that. With suitable questioning. You can get this idea that somebody goes for ordination... And the preceptors, and are your motives pure? And uh, when they, and you know, you, yes, maybe we should do that. Um, maybe I should try that out. I can experiment on you all. Anyway, um, are your motives pure? <laughs> Actually, this questioning goes on. This is what the whole process of of getting ordained. Um, into the Western Buddhist order is really all about. It's equivalent to this questioning. Um, a lot of that questioning you'll just be doing with your, within yourself. Within yourself. And of course, quite naturally through participating in this process and revealing that to your spiritual friends. It's a very wonderful thing, just sorting things out, clarifying things in yourself with others. In this way, you're purifying your motivation. And obviously, this purification goes on and on. It doesn't just, you know, go up to ordination and then stop. We've got to continually uh, purify our motivation. Uh, and it's interesting, the Dharmachari ordination places great emphasis on purification. We have the white uh, cases. It's very interesting when you notice your case are getting dirty. Does this represent 
actually, um, you know, an, an, in, an impurity within. Mm, very interesting. And in the ordination ceremony, um, we have the, uh, the, the symbolism of the vase of initiation, but you're, you're anointed with water to symbolize uh, purification. But why, in relation to the practice of ethics, is a pure motivation so important? Asanga says, because of his pure intention, when the bodhisattva fails in his training, then dependent on himself, a sense of shame will be born. So having a pure motivation means that to some extent, even to a very small extent, you have internalized your spiritual ideal. You have faith, which is a reflection of the bodhicitta, which is a sort of seed of bodhicitta within you. You're attempting to live from that. You really are trying to do it. And when you do things that go against your spiritual ideal, that go against the bodhicitta, you experience shame. The word, you know, because of your pure motivation, you experience shame. The word for shame is hri. And hri, like apatrapya, is an extremely important skillful mental event. Like apatrapya, it's said to be present, latent, in every skillful state. Hri, if you like, is your own internal ethical sense that arises out of your pure intention to cultivate bodhicitta. When you do or say or think something that runs counter to that pure intention. Apatrapya arises in relation to spiritual friends. Hri arises in relation to one's spiritual ideal that you, that you have to some extent within your own heart. And Hri and Apatrapya are complementary mental events. You can't really have one without the other. And I say this because people like the idea of Hri, you know, that the ideal is within you and uh, you become ashamed and aware of that. But uh, something is actually missing if it doesn't also arise in relation to others in the form of apatrapya. But hri is incredibly important. This this sense of, of shame when, when you when you go against your spiritual ideal represents a strong internalization of your spiritual values. And this is symbolized in the private ordination. Perhaps with apatrapya, this is you know this is symbolized in the public ordination. But in the private ordination perhaps it brings out free, if you can sort of separate things in this way. That might be spurious, doesn't matter. But in the private ordination, you, you, what, what, you, what you're committing yourself to is acting ethically, following the Bodhisattva's training, the Bodhisattva's conduct, regardless of what others are doing around you. Other people want to you know, beat somebody up. You say, no, I will not do that. Even though everybody might turn on you. Hri is the essence of individual ethical and spiritual responsibility. And it's your pure motivation that gives birth to that Hri, to that shame. And it's interesting to note that Asanga assumes that we will fail, which I find reassuring. Perhaps I shouldn't, but I do. Uh, our motive is pure, sure, but the task is difficult. Even though we might not have, might have a pure motive, it doesn't mean doesn't mean that we're all sorted out. Of course not. So we will fail. But the pure motivation 
will produce the ethical sensitivity to see failure as failure without rationalising or fudging the issue. And it will also provide, he will also provide the motive to correct the failure. Shame, Hri, again, is an uncomfortable, a painful mental event, which again we like to resist or suppress. There is indeed a negative mental state, the, the opposite of Hri, which is Ahrikya, Ahrikya, shamelessness, which represents the complete resistance to acknowledge any wrongdoing at all. You may be even proud of your wrongdoing. It's a hardened state of consciousness with no tenderness at all. Hri, a capacity for Hri, is, means that you become ethically tender, ethically sensitive. You're, you're, you're sensitive to your failings and to your effect upon others. And at the same time, shame, Hri, is a very clean, a very clear state. You know that you've done wrong. You see clearly what you've done. And that burns you. It's not that horrible, irrational guilt feeling where, you know, you just feel bad about yourself because, uh, and you're not sure why. Well, it's just because you're alive. It's nothing to do with anything. You might even have done something very positive and you feel guilty about it. Well, that's, 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 that's not shame at all. We won't even talk about guilt because it's so unpleasant. I'll let you work out in the groups the difference between guilt and shame and, you know, guilt and apotrapia. Hri comes from a root meaning to blush, which is very, very significant. And in fact, this connection is brought out in a very, very fine essay indeed by the great German Buddhist artist, poet, writer, uh, Bodhisattva, Lama Anagarika Govinda, an old friend and kindred spirit of Bhante and uh, a great inspiration uh, to me, Lama Govinda's books were the first books I read on, on, on Buddhism and I'm incredibly grateful to him. But in this, this essay, which is on the significance of Amitabha's mantra, he meditates on the significance of Amitabha's bija mantra, his seed or heart mantra. You're familiar with the mantra, Om Amideva Hri. Well, that's the mantra of Amitabha. But the seed mantra, which is really the essence of Amitabha, is Hri, that's his heart, um, his heart essence. And Lama Govinda points out that this Hri is in fact the same word as Hri, meaning shame. And Lama Govinda goes on to make all sorts of connections and links. Amitabha is of course red, a rich, ruby, glowing red. And of course when we blush, we turn red. The blood runs, rushes to our face. We feel warm, we feel hot when we feel uh, ashamed, when we blush. So when we feel shame, we're taking on, as it were, the colour of Amitabha. We're taking on the colour of the Buddha of love and compassion. Hri, shame, then, is the beginning of enlightened compassion. It's the bodhicitta rising up, calling us back to itself because we've gone away from it. So it rises up as this burning, as this blushing of shame. So yes, we've done something wrong, but if we've got a pure motivation, 
that will turn into this, this, this shame. That doesn't mean we should go around doing lots of things wrong so we can experience lots of shame. That's, that's, uh, don't misunderstand. But, you know, the shame is, 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 is turning us away from this unskillful action. So even though it's a very uncomfortable mental state, it's an incredibly positive state. It's the manifestation of love and compassion. This is what Lama Govinda says. When we chant the Amitabha Mantra, we're contemplating bodhicitta, the awakened mind in its most profound form. The Om represents the Dharmakaya, the absolute bodhicitta. Amitabha represents the Sangbhogakaya, the actual manifestation in form of this absolute bodhicitta. The Hri, the Hri is its manifestation in ordinary experience as ethical sensitivity. Uh, so when we chant this Hri, it's, it's, it's making us more sensitive to the effect of our actions on others. So I've already said a lot, but there are two more things uh, that Asanga says constitute the essence of ethics. So you can see with Apatrapya and Hri, both of these mental states are bringing us back to our spiritual ideal. The third thing, Asanga says, is to make correction after failure. You know, if we experience Apatrapya and Hri, we'll want to do something about it. It's not enough to experience shame and sensitivity to the wise. We need to act on that. And the action, first of all, is confession. Saying what you've done and then putting what you've done right. Actually doing something about it. And uh, the regular practice of confession uh, can really help us to become more, more, more aware of this and generate more of an attitude of, of putting things right. I think that's all fairly straightforward. Fourthly, the fourth factor in the essence of ethics is generating respect so that failure will not occur in the first place. Respect here means your continuing sense of respect and reverence for the Bodhisattva ideal itself. Um, Bhante, uh, you know, for, for the code of the Bodhisattva, Bhante in the Ten Pillars speaks of loving the Ten Precepts before they seem worthy of your love. So you know, if, you, if you really love your ethical code, if you love and respect and revere the conduct of a Bodhisattva, that will uh, generate an attitude so that you won't fail in your practice of the precepts in the first place. So you keep the ethical ideal alive in your mind. It make, keeps you alert. If you don't break the precepts, says Asanga, that leads to freedom from regret. You'll have no regrets, no self-reproach. This is also a very, very important mental state. Uh, Jer-E says, following general Buddhist tradition, that before you can successfully meditate, you need to be free of self-reproach and self-blame. Uh, you need to be free of all forms of guilt, rational and irrational. Um, if you're bogged down in regret, it's very, very difficult to make any headway in meditation. So if you don't make headway in meditation, it might be worth looking at yourself and just checking, well, do I have regrets? And are those regrets founded? Do I just have just a negative attitude to myself. And actually, I'm a good person, um, but I've just got this downer on myself. Well, you need to do something about that. 
It might be they're actually doing things in your life which are a cause for regret that you need to put right. But Jury says this, these feelings of, re- of regret and, and, and remorse need to be removed before we can go forward in our meditation practice. Even recommends lots and lots of, of puja and sutra reading and uh, offerings to free us um, from, the, from, from, this, from this regret and remorse. So, this is the essence of ethics for a bodhisattva. Um, You have a preceptor who you respect and revere, and that generates in you this sensitivity to the opinion of spiritual friends. You have a pure motivation, and that gives rise to shame, which will turn you away from unskillful activity. Because you have those two, you'll correct your failures you'll you'll confess them you'll put them right you'll do the positive and out of that you'll be free from all regret and remorse and you're just free you're just free then not just to meditate but to act for the benefit of others so this is the essence of ethics for a bodhisattva it's very interesting all this before we're given all the different precepts and so on what's really being communicated is that ethics is really about the cultivation of a sensibility. We need to have a feeling for ethics. We need to have an ethical sensibility, an ethical sense that we feel, as it were, intuitively. The precepts focus that and they also educate that ethical sense so that you know intuitively, eventually, what to do and how to live. What we, another way, very simple way we can speak of this, that ethics is about the development of conscience, the development of conscience, a clear and highly attuned conscience. One of the meanings of of sati, mindfulness, is indeed conscience. And of course, this this conscience, this ethical sensibility grows stronger and deeper as your felt understanding of spiritual life grows. And notice too that this sense is developed in relation to spiritual friends, in relation to your preceptor, actually to the whole Sangha. And it's why we place so much emphasis, another reason why we place so much emphasis on spiritual friends, why in the order we have chapter meetings and so on, uh, why we, we, we emphasise confession and uh, communication um, about ourselves. All this is indeed a training in empathy. The Bodhisattva is the great empathizer. The Buddha, of course, is the supreme empathizer. This is it's this empathy that's really the flowering, I think, of uh, of this ethical sensibility. When the Buddha looked out on the world and saw all living beings like lotus buds going in a great lake, when he saw the potential of all beings, it said that he felt great compassion. What the word is in the original Sanskrit and Pali for this is not karuna, but anukampa, which literally means trembling with, trembling with others. The Buddha is the supreme trembling, a trembler with others. The Buddha trembles with the spiritual potential in others. He trembles with others' joys and their sorrows. In the Bodhisattva ethics, we find a section in a Sangha's text 
on the Chitanu Vartana Shila, Chitanu Vartana Shila, which can be translated as the ethics of empathy. The Bodhisattva attunes his mind to others and with others. He's really with others, really tunes in to what's actually going on with him. He tunes into their character, tunes into their conditioning, tunes into what they actually need, tunes into what practices they need. Really, really tunes into them on a very deep level. Shantideva speaks about the realisation of Paratma Parivartana, the exchange of self and other, this profound imaginative identification with others. This identifying with others is the essence of metta, the essence of the metabhavna practice. What we're doing in the metabhavna practice is developing a love that's born of a profound awareness of others. You're attuned to them as them, not uh, as you think they ought to be and they might be. So the Bodhisattva's ethics, this essence of ethics, leads to this profound empathy. And all the different kinds of moral conduct that are described, all the different activities of the Bodhisattva grow from this ethical sense through to this empathizing empathizing with others. So you arrive at a point where you see people clearly, stripped of your self-interest. And then you can be really effective in giving them what they actually need. Like Dada Rinpoche did himself when, in the 1950s, he saw Tibetan refugee children pouring in from Tibet into Kalimpong on the streets, homeless and hungry. Uh, And he responded. He did something to alleviate their actual suffering. And he gave them the basis to actually practice the Dharma. Well, that's the example that we should follow. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 